All right. So the, uh, the next uh, couple of Sundays, uh, we're going to talk about covenant theology, not in a, uh, not in a academic way, more in a, a practical outworking. And so what, what Mark and Robert and I talked about doing was all three of us kind of see this uh, covenant theology working its way out in unique ways based on our own personalities and uh, experiences. And so what we thought was just, we just kind of said, all right, you take this week and give your lens on covenant theology. And then Mark will do the same thing and Robert do the same thing. So the lens that I'm putting on this morning uh, is, is a lens I've used for years and it just happens to be really convenient. Uh, one is mothers. Uh, this, this is mother's day and, and there's a, I'll make a point there. And then the other is my favorite illustration about parenting is thir- is the using thoroughbreds as a parable. So it's highly convenient that I'm the first one because uh, yesterday was Derby Day, today is Mother's Day. And, and you'll see what I mean in a second. But if you, if you want to take your pew Bible, I want to show you for me where I anchor my understanding of covenant theology is Genesis 1, 28. It, it, it's convenient that it's, you know, uh, the first book of the Bible. And you'd think because we espouse covenant theology, uh, from Genesis to Revelation is the teaching of Scripture, we, we should be able to find it in Genesis. And I think we do, absolutely. In the creation narrative, uh, and you know, the, you, I, don't, I don't need to expound Genesis 1 to you, but you know, he creates, uh, God is, is, is creating the heavens and the earth and all the animals and everything. And then he gets to creating man. And uh, let's read verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, here's, the, here's, here's for me where the covenant theology starts. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Several years ago, I was studying this passage in my Hebrew class, one of my Hebrews classes. And as you read this passage, it says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And it reads like what most of us hear. God blessed me, gave me the tools, the mind, the resources, and said to me, go be fruitful and multiply. That's, that's kind of how it reads, right? It, it reads like God gave me something and then told me to go do something with that. And it's not a necessarily bad reading, but it's just not... In the Hebrew, that's not the way it's constructed. In the Hebrew, it's actually constructed. And some of your Bibles, if you have it, actually say it like this. And God blessed them saying, go be fruitful and multiply. And the, and the, the participle there of saying actually in the Hebrew means that it's not a direct command that you go do. It's actually a promise that God will fulfill. So meaning it should read like this. God blessed them and ensured that they would be fruitful and multiply. The onyx of the fulfillment was not on Adam and Eve, though they would be the conduits for how it happened. The onyx of it would be on God. Does that make sense? God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. How could he say that? Because he blessed them. He told them to go do it. He's going to ensure that it happens. God never makes promises that could be broken, right? He never makes a promise that, oh, you didn't fulfill your end, therefore it's not going to happen. No, God says it and he does it. And here he says that he blessed them. And and so what we see from Genesis 1, the be fruitful, multiply, is an outworking of God promising to fulfill this 
generation after generation after generation after generation. So when we get to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, all the families of the world are blessed because this happened. Uh, all the nations will come to worship King Jesus. Why, can, why is that Revelation 21 promise fulfilled? Because he declared it in Genesis 1 to be so. And then our, the covenant theology works its way out. This is so freeing to me as a, as a dad, uh, uh, as a granddad, as I move into that, as a, as a pastor, uh, as, a, as a community, that God is ensuring through us to accomplish his purposes through the covenant uh, family dynamic. But what this also does, and this is why I had the connection to Mother's Day. When there's, y'all know in, in Mark 3 and in the other gospels too, there's that moment where Jesus is standing and teaching and someone says, hey Jesus, your mother and your brothers and sisters are here to see you. And what does he say? Who are my brothers and mothers and sisters? Like, at first you're like, whoa, Jesus has a really low view of his mom. And like, Jesus, like she's right there. But that's not at all what he's saying. He's actually espousing a much bigger view of Mary's motherhood. It wasn't just that she was the mother of Jesus and James and Simeon and all the other brothers and sisters. That she was part of a much larger family that has many mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers. And this is such good news to the orphan. If you're an orphan and you have no father or mother, where do you hear this? You're in the kingdom of God. You have many mothers, brothers, fathers, sisters. If you're like me and you have a horrible relationship with your father, where do I go to find fathering? I go into the family of God to find fatherhood. Where do you go as a mother? I'm, I can't have children. You are still a mother. You are still Eve, the nurturer of life. You still get to bend that out in the family of God. And so this is such good news that the Bible doesn't just apply, uh, be fruitful and multiply to those who can physically reproduce. It is a much bigger thing. And I like to say to people, not only is this the founding verse for covenant theology, to me it's also the first place the Great Commission is given. Because this God intends to fill the earth with his people. And all Jesus did in Matthew 28 was remind the Jewish disciples, hey, this gospel was not just for this little Jewish nation. It was for all nations. Go make disciples of all the nations. That's basically what he's saying here. Go make disciples, little followers of Jesus, or here, image bearers that do my will all over. So that's why Jesus could say, who are my mother, brother, father, sister? Those who do the will of my father in heaven. So, if you're here this morning, you need to understand you are part of this covenant line of family. Yes, an immediate application is those little rugrats, we'll call them thoroughbreds, that you're raising in your home. That we're raising in this church, and I'm going to give that illustration in a second. But it's much bigger than that. We are all a part of this. So if you find yourself without children because of choice or because of God's providence in your life, you are still vital to the covenant community. If you find yourself as an empty nester, you don't get to tap out. You're still part of the covenant community of raising the next generation. You, you, you getting more smoking? All right. Second passage. Turn over to Psalm 78. This for me and Danielle, uh, who's my wife, um, has become our life passage for parenting and even how we've chosen to live our life in this, in this community. Psalm 78 
Psalm 78 is, uh, if, if you look, if you've got your Bible open there, right at the very beginning, it says a masculine of Asaph. Asaph was uh, one of the priests, and he was in charge of leading worship, and a masculine was a uh, worship element. Okay, so what this means is this psalm would have been read and, and expounded upon in Israel's worship. You need to understand that to, from a liturgical end. Uh, Israel viewed the shaping of its culture, its shaping of its people through a very liturgical way. And I'll, I'll say more about that in just a second. But, but let's just read verses 1 through 8, because 1 through 8, is a, it's a very long psalm. It's the second longest psalm. Psalm 119 is the longest. But the, the rest of the passage from 9 through the end of the chapter basically just unfolds some of the stories of Israel's history. Why, did they, why, does, why does it do that? Well, let's read 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his, mighty, and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So basically what he's saying is here. Is this, the, the, the covenant family of God is meant to perpetually grow and, and fortify and be healthy from generation to generation. You guys need to ensure that you're doing that. How do you do that? You tell the stories of God's faithfulness from year after year, and you remind even the children not yet born. How do we do that? How do you tell someone who's not born about the works of God? You set up a culture that will do that perpetually so that when they are born into it, it just happens. All right, now here's, here's where the thoroughbred stuff comes in. All right? How in the world do you raise a generation of Kentuckians to love the Kentucky Derby? Well, every first Saturday of May, you have a party, you put a hat on, you get your cheat sheet out for the race numbers, you, you take your kids to Keeneland in April, you, you do all this liturgical stuff so that they grow up loving thoroughbreds. I mean, I wept when they, when they sang My Old Kentucky Home yesterday. Why? Because it's, I've been here 19 years. I didn't even grow up here. I grew up in Georgia. But I've been here 19 years, and I've been liturgicalized. No, that's not a word. But I've been formed and shaped by the liturgy of Kentucky so that on that Saturday, I drop everything because I want to watch animals run. It's crazy. But it's not so crazy when you start thinking about how people are formed. My kids, we all sat around. I have four kids. They're married. They're boyfriends. Everybody, we all sat in my half-finished kitchen because we're remodeling. And we had our little TV and we just watched the derby and cheered for Strike It Rich or Rich Strike or whatever his name was. And it was amazing. Getting texts. Oh, I bet $5 and won $400. Like it just, it's just part of the liturgy, right? Okay. That's how you form the next generation of Kentuckians. Same way, 
maybe even at a, for sure, at a higher level. This is what God is saying in Psalm 78. How are you going to form the next generation of, of followers of Christ? Year after year, faithful servant after faithful servant, young and old, working together to ensure that on those days they put their hope in God. All right, so let me, let me unpack the thoroughbred illustration because I think it helps. And here's how I'm going to do it. Some of you in this room are still in the throes of parenting. Raise your hand if you're still in the throes of parenting. All right. All of you look around. Keep your hands up. All right. Raise your hand if you're in the sunset of your parenting. See, some of you are like, I'm not sure if I should say that or not. Like, all right. Because I set you up earlier, like if you're an empty nester, you're still apart. Okay. Here, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm I'm to give you my thoroughbred illustration, and then I'm going to apply it to current parents, and then I'm going to apply it to church parents, all right? Uh, those of us that will be parenting these families in the church, okay? All right, first thing, so a thoroughbred. Without question, a thoroughbred is one of the most highly strung animals ever made by God and uh, tweaked by man, <laughs> Right? Uh, I asked the horse lover earlier today, I said, I said, tell me a little bit about Rich Strike. She's like, all of us in the horse industry wonder about drugs, right? Yeah. How does this horse get so fast, so quick, right? Okay, that'll come out later when they review the tapes and the blood work. But right now we're going to enjoy it. Uh, my barber, you've heard me say this before, has a picture of Secretariat on his mirror. And Secretariat has grabbed his coat and is pulling him into the fence at his barn uh, where he was stabled. Thoroughbreds are crazy. You go to the horse farms, they got round fences because thoroughbreds are so skittish, they can't back their way into a corner because they get skittish. And, and there's stories of thoroughbreds impaling themselves in square fences. There's two fences because a thoroughbred will get excited. It can jump the first one, but can't jump the second one. And the, the riders can't ride in the pens with the thoroughbreds. They got to ride on the outside to go feed them and all. You can't put more than one thoroughbred in its own pen because they'll hurt each other. It takes like six stagehands to help thoroughbreds make another horse in the breeding shed. These are crazy wild animals, right? But last night, 26 of them lined up right across from each other and ran with glory, grace, beauty, hundreds of thousands of people were safe in their presence as they watched them run. Why is that? I think there's so many similarities to parenting. You have some wild horses in your house. And they will kick and scream and buck and chew and bite. But your job as a parent is to get them to the place where they can run with glory and beauty. How do you do that? All right, three ways. One, it's clear that a thoroughbred has authority. He has a jockey. He has a trainer. He has a bridle. He has a bit. What's the purpose of that? Is it to control him? Not really. It's to unleash him. If you've read the book Seabiscuit, Seabiscuit is an amazing story about a thoroughbred. And what the jockey would do is he would hold her back with that bridle and the leadership. And at the right moment, he'd let her go. And boom, she passed War Admiral and all of them and win all of her races. That's, that's why authority is so important in a child's life. Not to control and hem them in, but to set them free. To give them guidance, to give them, to give them, to give them a bridle and authority and training so that they can go. Parents, 
This, this occurs in a lot of ways. So remember what we said in Psalm 71, the purpose of all of this is so that they will set their hope in God. It's not so they're straight-A students. It's not so they're good American citizens. It's not so they're well-behaved kids and can sit through church. It's not any of that. That might be byproducts. But what if their kid gets sick and your goal is a healthy kid? What if your kid gets sick? What if your kid misbehaves? What if your kid, what if our, what if our country implodes in 50 years? What are we going to do? We still have to set our hope in God. So what we're doing as a covenant community is preparing them to set their hope in God. How do I, as a parent, do that? I give them authority and leadership. Here's a couple examples. Parents, your kids need to learn to obey your voice, not your emotional reactions. Let me say that again. Your children need to learn, come here, not come here. You know the difference? I'm obeying my father's voice, not my father's rants. <laughs> I'll never forget coming unhinged one time in my house. Why is everybody yelling in this house? Oh, because you're yelling in this house. <laughs> like this moment of realization that I am modeling for them some kind of authority. What you do when you model for them authority that's healthy and good is you won't let them blame their teachers, their coaches, uh, the authorities, because you set up for them a faulty view of authority. Uh, an overly independent view, a critical eye about those that are over them. So one of the things we've done is uh, if we get an email from a teacher, we tell the teacher, we're following your lead. If my son or daughter is acting up in class, you're in charge. We're not going to go, oh, but he was tired. Oh, but we had a long weekend. Oh, but the dog ate his homework. No excuses. That authority is there because God put it there. We're going to teach our kids to obey authority. They see that in us. You shape and mold them, but you lead them. I'll never forget having a conversation with a guy when he, he was, he had a five-year-old and he was struggling to keep, this kid was just manipulating and controlling and pitching fits and all the stuff that, you know, that five-year-olds do. And I, and, he's, and, I, and I said, well, you know, what do you think is going on? And this is what he said. Oh, I think he's going to be a lawyer. Oh, really? Okay. He's five. Why, why do you think that? Well, man, he can just really put together an argument so clear, so concise, and it's compelling. And this is, I said, well, give me an example. He said, well, last weekend, he said, Dad, we can either go to my friend's house or I can get a cookie. Uh, okay. So those are my options as your parent. And the child and the dad spent his wheels trying to figure out, okay, which one? And, and this kid just crafted this whole, you know, cockamamie to get this, either go to the friend's house or get a cookie. And the dad was sort of like, he's just a strong-willed kid. He's probably going to be a lawyer. I said, listen, he might be a lawyer. He'd probably be a good one. But that's not what's going on here. This is not you molding him to be a future lawyer. He is manipulating and controlling you and trying to usurp your authority by using manipulative techniques. And I said, so what if you said no to either of those? What would he have done? Oh, he'd have laid down on the floor and kicked the fit. Was that what a lawyer would have done? Well, maybe. But, um. But you understand what was going on there. He was, he was not the authority. The kid was the authority at that point. Instead, the dad just said, no, we're not doing either of those. This is what you're doing. You're going to go clean your room. And you're going to join us at the dinner table in just a few minutes. That's what he should have done. Instead, he gave the authority away. Uh, so making excuses. So, so parents, take that for You are the authority. You are in control. The school is not. Uh, the ball team is not. The dance club is not. The, the studio is not, whatever it is, you are the authority in your kids' lives. Because so those are the parents. Okay, the church parents. 
How do you see this? Do you, have, do you see yourself as you walk these halls, as you're out in the community, as a parent, authority figure in these kids' lives? Are you, are you kind to them? Are you welcoming to those kids? Are you present? Are you present as a church member in the lives of our kids? So, you know, I tell dads and moms when they come to my office and have parenting questions, the greatest gift you can give your kids is your presence, not the methods and techniques. Those change with every generation, right? I mean, think about those of us that have raised kids. We went from going kids God's way to focus on the family to uh, are my kids on the right track to shepherding a child's heart. I mean, we've got all these like, and they're all wonderful. And there'll be another book that comes out. What is, a, what is a young parent supposed to do? Now there's all these podcasts, right, that I listen to. Oh, I need to listen to this podcast and get this. All the information is out there. The greatest gift you as a parent, you as a church can give to these young kids is your presence. Show up. Show up every day. Think about this as, as a church community. What if some of you empty nesters showed up to vacation Bible school? On the flip side, what if some of you parents of toddlers showed up at the seniors ministry? That whole covenant notion would just take care of itself just by being present. I'm telling you, if you come to Vacation Bible School, you're going to get a full dose of what it's like to parent all these kids. And if you have kids, you go to the senior ministry thing, you're going to need to experience a wealth of wisdom and experience from our seniors. All right, so that's the first one. A thoroughbred or a child needs authority and leadership. Second, a thoroughbred, when they run, it's clear what their rails are. And notice I said rails, not rules. A thoroughbred has a track to run on. Okay, and if you, if you know anything about thoroughbreds and their jockeys, some thoroughbreds and some jockeys like to run right up here by the rail. Some like to get way out here and then dart in. I mean, that's, that's my, I have, I have four children. I have children that love to just keep the rules right up here. They just want to, am I keeping it tight? And then I have somebody here, ah, is this far enough, dad? You know, but what I've learned as a dad and what we've got to learn is, they're in the rails. It's okay. They're not out in the fans tromping on people. They're not running around in the barn. You know, they're in the race. Great. Give, this, is, this, is the, this is, to me, this is the joy of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, as you know, were not given so that the Israel could have righteousness. It was to lead them to the one who would be righteous, Christ. The law was meant to set them up for success so that they would go to their Savior. But the law, the rules of Christianity, were for the flourishing of the people, not to hem them in with some kind of self-righteous uh, attainment of them. They were meant to provide for the community a flourishing under God's rule. Same, same with parenting. My job is to set the expectations clear and then live in them, knowing where my kid is, knowing what the environment is, and that's my job as a parent. One of the, one of the best examples of this is, yeah, I, get, I get questions about this to so, so parents. What, what, about, what about devotionals, you know, nightly devotionals? Well, if your nightly devotionals go like this, all right, kids, everybody sit down, listen to dad, he's gonna, we're having a devotional. Quit talking, quit crying, open your Bible. What do you think that's forming in them in terms of their love of Jesus, the church, the Bible? Like, get me out of here. This is, the most, this is the most oppressive point of our day, family devotionals. So if that's your family devotional, stop it. <laughs> and come talk to me, I'll give you some other ideas. But what if family devotionals were something that were more in line with your family rhythm? So what we did 
We would, we, would, we would have periods of time where we opened the Bible and went through the catechisms. or things, But mostly, we just made dinner time. We bought a table where everybody could see each other. And we sat around the table. And we just started talking about the day. We started talking about what they were learning at school and from friends. And there was, there was crying and there was laughing. And oftentimes, I or Danielle or even one of the older kids, that they got to would bring a Bible verse into it. And we just liturgically had family devotionals as we went along. Because it made, it made an environment where they felt like they could run in the rails that we were providing. The goal is that they would be free. And I mentioned a minute ago about, the, about the, the yelling, you know, who's yelling in this house. One of the greatest gifts you as a parent can give your kids is your own personal uh, regulating of your own emotions. If you are regulated, if your emotions are regulated, you will, that will bend out to your kids. If you're unhinged, if you're unregulated, that's going to happen in your children. So before you try to correct the behavior of your kids, first look at yourself and see, where am I unregulated? Where might I be operating in a bad spot? Uh, that gets to this idea of presence as well. And then as a church family, and I think, I think we do this really well as a church, and I hope we continue to do it, is that we just have a gospel-based approach as a church. Uh, it's not a whole bunch of rules. Uh, one thing, though, that I think we probably have to keep sensitive uh, as, a, as a church this big is how parents choose school choices, right? That's one thing that can become very difficult as you raise kids in this day and age. Do I homeschool? Do I Christian school? Do I public school? Do I Montessori school? Blah, blah. And, you know, and we like to laugh. We've done all five forms of education that you can do uh, with your kids because we had this view. I got this child who needs this. I got this child who needs this. We're in this situation. This is our life situation. This is our financial situation. This is blah, blah, blah. As a church, one of the things we can help do is encourage all the families to lead, educate, disciple their kids in the way that is best for their family. And that's something that the covenant community can do well. All right, third. Our thoroughbred has authority, a bridle, uh, a jockey, leadership. They have track to run on. The final thing is they have a purpose. They, 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 have, a, they have a finish line. The, they know the race is going to end, and then the, the, the celebration begins. The roses, the, the celebration, the photography, all that. Uh, parents, I think this for us is that you parents with purpose. Um, the, what do you, are you infusing into your kids a much larger view of their life? Uh, it's not about the ball team. It's not about the dance recital. It's not about just their little, little world that they live in. They need to understand the world is big, that God is big. So uh, things like the use of your home, the use of activities, it all communicates something. Uh, how you approach the baseball team, how you approach the karate studio, how you approach uh, the, uh, the school that you go to is communicating something to your children. And that's a conversation worth having as parents. What are we communicating? And are we communicating a big picture of God's kingdom to our kids? One of the things we did, um, we liked to, we, because, of, because of my job when I was with Campus Outreach, I traveled the world a lot. Uh, and so if, you, if you're able to do that, taking your kids overseas is worth, worth doing. Uh, and it's worth taking a vacation, saving up, and go do something that's not uh, just Destin, you know, Destin, Florida. Go, go, go somewhere else. Because two things we would do on these trips with our kids. One, it was we said to our kids, we want you to understand that different is not wrong. 
That's an important thing for kids today to understand that different is not wrong. And so I never forget, we flew into Bangkok uh, and my kids were, were young. We got, you know, you know 40 something hours and we're just like dead tired walking through the Bangkok airport. We go get in the, in the van taxi that we had and we get in and one of my kids said, Dad, why do they drive on the wrong side of the street? And I was so tired, but I'm like, oh, I told him we're going to talk about different, it's not wrong. You know, like, it's not wrong, it's just different. But it was just, just how ingrained in us it is to judge what's going on in the world because they're on the other side of the road driving as wrong. It's not wrong. There's nothing moral about the left or right side of the road. But my kids started seeing that. So we, so we spent the whole 10 days in Thailand talking about things they were learning that were different, not wrong. And it just was so helpful. And then the second thing was we took our kids overseas and we put our kids in situations throughout their life so that they would understand what it's like to be in the minority. That they weren't always the majority looking or thinking or uh, gifted or whatever in, in their life. That they, they, we challenged them to do things where they wouldn't be successful as someone else. So they would feel what it's like to fail. We put them in situations where they were not the only skin color or economic status so that they would understand what it's like to be in the minority. And so going to Thailand, going to Africa, going to Mexico, they feel that. And then as a parent, you help them understand those dynamics because that gives them a much bigger kingdom purpose. The world is this big, not this big. And our kids just tend to do that, right? They just tell of this is my world. I mean, from everything, this is my toy. No, it's our toy. Um, for, for just, so how many of you have heard me tell our Halloween candy story? Okay, I'm going to tell it then. Okay. Because most of you haven't. And, and, and if I need to be brought under charges by our elders, you can uh, for this parenting. But it, but it really helped our kids. So one Halloween, it is to this, per, to this point of giving them a much larger purpose. And it starts with something small. You know, Halloween is the most gluttonous time of the year, right? It's like candy galore. And when you live in neighborhoods like we live in, it's just candy everywhere. And so we knew, here it comes, we're going to have a, a mountain of candy for these kids. And, uh, and so I came, I came to the kids. I said, listen, everybody's going to go get their own Halloween candy. But when we come back, we're going to put it in one big pot and we're going to share it as a family. All six of us are going to share it. Now you get to pick your own 25 pieces that you can go put in your room and you can eat them all tonight if you want. Or you can space it out. You know, we gave them, again, the rails, not the rules, right? You know, it's like doing the whole deal. But we're going to put the candy. Here's the only caveat. If one person complains, the whole pile is going in the trash. So as a parent, I was like, are we clear? There's no, are my words are not unclear. Are they? Yes, daddy, we got it. Are you hearing me? Repeat back to me what I just said. You know, the, the whole deal, right? So we go have a great time, you know, we had one person dressed as Little Debbie, and one was a dog, and one was a ninja, and you know, and all this kind of, and we come back, and we got this huge thing of candy, and, you know, I love candy, I mean, I love candy like it's my job, just go look at my desk drawer, right, Mark, I've got candy, it's just stashed in there, we come in, and, and I'm so excited, because they got a bounty for mom and dad, too, right, and, uh, and, we're there, and that's all right, all right, pick your own 25 out. And this is their fun, you know, we're using that as a math lesson because, you know, the, the four-year-old is one, two, three, you know, so you, get, you get 10 more, you know, that kind of thing. So it's education all across the board, right? And we get up and everybody's got their 25 and I get up and sure enough, one of them says, that's my Twizzler! Mm. 
keep your word, you're communicating something with your expectations, this is going to be harsh. And you could just see all the kids go, what did you just do? I said, guys, what was our rule? What was our, what was our aim that we we're going to collectively share? So seriously, I went and picked up the whole mound of candy, and we had a team meeting. We call, it, we call that at our house, team meetings. And I dumped all the candy in the trash. To this day, my 23-year-old says that was one of the most foundational lessons in my life. Because she understood there's an authority, there's some rails, and there's a purpose to our life. And, and she would say, it wasn't oppressive. Now, some of you are like, oh, that's such a mean dad. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but it wasn't mean at that moment. It was, it was a point in their life where I was molding and shaping them to be something that they're doing right now. Praise God. So uh, give them a purpose. All right, let's finish. Um, let's finish. Go back to Psalm 78 if you have it there. There's a warning here in covenant theology that is important. Verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God. That's our goal with this. When we have a church, as you're a parent, our goal is to have a community where they set their hope in God. And they not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Here's the warning. The best gift one generation can give to another generation is their repentance, not their trophying of the heroic things they did. Here's why. Because if we just constantly repeat the glories of what we did in one generation and don't connect it to hope in God, then our kids grow up wondering, I can't do it like that. I won't do it like that. I can't do it like that. Blah, blah, blah. But if one generation says to the other one, this is how I messed up. This is what I wish I had done differently. It doesn't negate the glories. This, this, these are the works of God. But if we are able to tell them, this is how we messed up. This is what I wish I had known. This is what I wish I had done different. It is such a gift to the younger generation to hear the humility and repentance of the generation before them. So as a parent, what your parent, what your kids don't need to hear is, well, I tried my best. If you weren't so ornery, if you didn't, because what they're hearing is, oh, I don't have to have humility. I don't have to repent. My parents don't. They just blame. They just self-defend. They just uh, aggrandize what they've done without seeing their blemishes. So they, again, they pick up on that. But what if you come in and say, I'm sorry for the way I talked to you. I'm sorry for the way I handled that. I wish I had done this differently. Will you forgive me? That grace in the covenant community is one of the best gifts God gives us. Last story. So I've, I've talked a lot about my famous situation. And so one of my greatest goals in life was to be a good father, right? Because I didn't have one. And I want to be a good dad. And, I, you know, and so, but this is, this is the way it would happen at my house. I would get my calendar out and we'd plan all the kids' activities and I'd be looking at my calendar and, and I'd have it all planned out. You know, Caroline's got dance and Andrew's got football and Sarah's got piano and Danielle needs me to take this kid to here. Well, okay, I got it all figured out. I'm good dad. And then without fail, about every third week, this would happen. Danielle would come in and say, hey, 
she'd look at my calendar and she'd go, hey, did you forget that Sarah had a, you know, a daughter's appointment? And that would strike at the nerve of my insecurity of being a dad. Are you saying I'm a bad dad? Are you saying I didn't think about my kid's schedule? Are you saying that I, and I would just immediately get defensive and, 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 and attack Danielle. I'm like, oh, I'm a good dad. And then I would start listing out all the great things I did the week before as a good dad. And she's got to point out the one that I missed. So this, I mean, seriously, I know. Again, if you, I'm sorry, I'm one of your pastors. But I, I, you know, I was like, this is crazy. Why do I do this? So about four years ago, so we were 21 years into this parenting thing, right? And I finally, like, go get some help, Will. So I, I call a counselor friend of mine, and, and we, we, put her, we put her on the, on the Zoom because it was during, uh, well, it was, it was right before COVID. But we, she, was, she was out of town, so I said, and we said, we need some help. And so I unpacked for her all that I just said to you. And she said, she said, Will, do you have it as your goal to be a good father and a husband? I was like, oh, yes. With all my heart, that's what I want to, you know, I gave this real passionate, you know, like, yes, yes, yes. She's like, I think that's your problem. I said, it's a problem for me to want to be a good dad and a husband? She's like, yeah. Your goal needs to be God. Not being a good parent, being a good father, being a good husband. Because when you succeed at that, you become arrogant and prideful. And then you defend yourself because you're such a good parent. Or when you're not, you get depressed and upset and angry and frustrated. But if your goal is God, then you're free to be a good dad and good mom or a good husband. And you're free to fail and own both of those. Brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how liberating that was as a, you know, at that time I was 45. A 45-year-old man to go, my goal is God. Yeah, I should know that. But I lost it in the weeds of trying to be something that I know God wanted me to be. God wanted me to be a good father, a good husband. But the goal is to set my hope in God. And so if I set my hope in God, my kids see me set my hope. So I was able to go to my kids and say, I am so sorry that I worked out on top of you all my own personal insecurities. <laughs> Will you forgive me? I want to set my hope in God, not in you. And I'm sorry that I've done that. It was liberating to them. Like, okay, that's good. All right, so there, there, there you go. Three quick applications for us as a covenant community here. Number one is pray. I, and and I, here's what I think I'm going to do. I made a note to myself. I think I'm going to have Paul, our, our genius web designer, in some way, and I'll work with Nicole on this, some way to get the, the families that have young kids of our church out so that you can have a roster of our kids to pray for them by name. All right? That's one thing we can all do. I mean, I have in my journal, and you kind of have this on your phone, I have lists of people and names that, and pictures to remind me. I'm an early childhood education major, so I've got pictures of people that I'm praying for. Uh, what if we did that? What if we as a community, what if you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get six families that I'm close with in this church, and I'm going to put their picture on my refrigerator or in my journal or on my phone, and I'm going to pray for them. What if we did that? That would be powerful. So prayer. The second is uh, some form of hospitality. Inviting young families into your home or young families inviting some of our senior empty nesters into your home. A reciprocated hospitality. And I don't just mean showing up at a church event. I mean in your home where they got to watch you uh, interact with your wife. They got to watch you interact with your kids. They got to watch, like that sort of thing is incredibly shaping and forming. So what if we had a vision this year 
I'm going to have two or three. Wherever you are in your demographic, if you're an empty nester, I'm going to go find two or three families that have young kids and invite them into my home. I know that would stretch every... I know you tapped out of the child-rearing thing years ago. You don't have child-safe, you know, cabinets anymore, and you got, you know, you got heirlooms sitting on your coffee table that they're probably going to break, and, you know, you got... Well, put all those up and have those little rugrats over and enjoy some pizza one night. And then on the flip side... Young families, invite some of, the, some of the empty nesters, some of the older saints in, to your home and let them sit at your table and watch you do dinner time, <laughs> watch you do bedtime. Woo! That would be it. That would be revealing, wouldn't it? <laughs> but, but what if we exposed ourselves hospitality-wise that way? That would be amazing. And then third, I mentioned this before, there, there's ways to serve in this community. Uh, shameless plug for the VBS that's coming up. You could be a part of that. It's, it's so much bigger than us pulling off some kind of funny, fun VBS. It's bigger than that. It's a chance for us to disciple each other. It's a chance for us to do that. Serve in the nursery. But on the flip side, you families with young kids, asking how, we can be a, how you can be a part of the Mill Creek uh, outreach that we have. How you can be a part of the Senior Ministries program. What can you do to get your family engaged in the life of the the church here. All right, so there's my, uh, my take on applying covenant theology personally into our church. Uh, if you got other questions or want to dive deeper into some of that, let me know. But uh, let's pray and then get ready for worship. Lord, if we all have a deep heart to see the faith that we hold so dear passed on to the next generation. I pray you'd do it. I pray that you would hold good to the promise that you gave in Genesis 1 to bless your people and ensure that they are fruitful and multiplying. Lord, where we have messed that up, where we have been um, bad parents, bad community members, whatever that might be, forgive us. And Lord, help us to change. Help us to repent. Help us to become the men and women you want us to be for these kids. Lord, I pray that every one of the adults in this room would set their hope on you. Because as we set our hope on you, the next generation will see us set our hope in you and they will follow. So Lord, help us to be leaders in that way. Help us to be the, the authorities that we need to set our hope on you. And Lord, I do pray that this generation of young men and women coming up from birth to high school that they would be a part of your kingdom mission on earth. That your kingdom would come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven through these next generation. Lord, make us a church that's passionate about this, creative about this, sacrificial in the way we pull this off. But make us a covenant family that brings the next generation to set their hope in you. Now, Lord, as we... Some of us leave here and go to our Sabbath rest. Give us rest. Give us hope. Give us joy. Prepare us for a week. For those of us that are coming to worship now, God, would you meet with us and inflame our hearts that we might love you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.